Again, Lord, we come to you uh, with thankful hearts, thankful for this uh, Sunday School series and uh, just this, this new world, really, of uh, developments for many of us to see all, all the, the parts of Scripture that address in some way, that touch in some way and connect between a, a historical doctrine and this particular doctrine as well of the realm of the dead and the descent of Christ. So bless the time that we have uh, to finish this series up in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this is our seventh and uh, I believe it's going to be final class. So this is going to be an interesting one, I'll tell you. All right, so, but let's start with, with our regular practice, what we've kind of taken on here real quick. All right, Samuel, what do you have here for Upper Shield? Paradise. Paradise, there we go. There you go. Abe's bosom, Abe's side. Very good. All right, Lower Shield. All right, Jane, I like it. Hades, what else? Torment, Sheol, and I think I heard anguish over here. That's right. All right, good. Our lowest, uh, Monica, what do, what do you have? Give me nothing. Jamie? Pit? A uh, little bit more. Bottomless pit. Let's, let's make sure we get the full... Yes, because pit frequently is by itself refers to just the grave. Uh, what else? Uh, not lake of fire, but abyss. Uh, Tartarus. There we go. Very good. I don't. I think we got them all. Oh yeah, Abaddon, Apollyon, and then okay. And then our final judgment, Gary, now's your opportunity. Lake of fire. Okay, what else? Lake of fire. There we go. What's the, what's the word that they, uh, for, the, for the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, there you go. All right. So I'm just putting you through your through your reps here. I don't know. Did I, am I forgetting one? Seems like I'm light on on one here. Outer darkness. There we go. Outer darkness. Keep this thing moving. Okay. So, and, oh yeah. And of course, we want to make sure we clarify all of this. Thank thank you. Temporary, intermediate state. See. Oh man, this makes me feel. So good. All right, and then this one is eternal. All right. Very good, very good, very good. Okay. Now, at the end of the last class, I proposed a few questions as a kind of a teaser I threw out there. So here's a question to, to kind of chew on in your head, which is, was his descent related to a penal substitution. So maybe another way to put it, did he descend because he was incarnate to maintain his continuity with being human? Is that part of him descending? Is that part of his humanity? Something. And the answer is yes. 
to that part. Okay, and here's a quote that, that was out of the, uh, the Matthew Emerson book. Uh, quote, death, both the moment of dying and the state of being dead, is a universal human experience, and Christ experiences it with us and for us. So that's something to consider as far as Christ's humiliation and the fact that he took on the form of becoming a servant, of becoming a man, of becoming incarnate, that he continued that into not just all the way up to the cross, but into the grave, because that, as the, to use um, Emerson's words, the universal human experience, he continues in his humanity, although now disembodied, continues in his humanity to descend into the grave. Now you start to carry this out, though, and here's the follow-up question, which is, well, uh, actually, sorry, I had another note here. Let's see, uh, sorry, Jane, I, I might have stolen some of your thunder there. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account equal, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, mm -hmm. but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, now frequently, I think, this verse, it, when we think about this verse or it's preached on or, or applied within a, a sermon, we frequently think of, um, in fact, I did it recently, that idea of he's, him setting aside the joy and that he was obedient to the de point of death. And uh, the point that I'm bringing out of, of that same set of verses is the fact that he became a servant, that he took on the likeness of men, that he took on a human form, which would include this. And then I would also remind you from Colossians 1.18, where it says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So if he is, you know, if you think this through then, okay, if he is the firstborn of the dead, he's the first to take on that glorified body. That means that he maintained throughout the descent then his incarnate state, or, or his, uh, his humanity, I should say, at least in that way. So, uh, so the answer to, to that question is yes. Um, so in the sense of a penal substitution uh, or, or choosing to take on um, humanity, which is to humble himself because taking on that humanity took place after Genesis 3. So the fall, taking that on after the fall is a sense of taking a penal substitution and being um, humbled. So then the follow-up question to that is, should we therefore assume that Jesus' descent to the dead included a vicarious punishment? In other, <laughs> in other words, was the descent a continuation of his humiliation? And the answer to that one, as we appropriately heard in the sound effect of the audience, is no. Uh, so this is the last class. So my observation is, Gary, like all your questions, uh, can't play the card anymore of, hey, we'll answer that next week. 
All right, so I'm sure you're like super excited. Right? I'm excited for you, brother. I'm Could excited for you here because they're coming. I know the gears are turning. Um, Jesus substitutes in a number of different ways. Not all of it is penal. So, um, you know, for instance, when uh, he was baptized, you yes. know, that wasn't a, that was a substitution. He was identifying yes. with us, but it wasn't penal. And so when um, his body goes to the grave and when his soul goes to the realm of the dead that we're looking at here, um, it is substitution for us, but there isn't a penalty associated with it. So it is substitutionary, but it isn't penal as it, as it, as it were. There isn't like a, um, a, a, a penalty, so to speak. For instance, his body doesn't suffer corruption. So um, it's a virtuous um, exercise that he's going through that we're able to share uh, the first fruits in. Correct. So to that point, we are splitting between. What I'm attempting to do is to show you the split because there is a penal, there is a penal, a penalty being paid in the sense that in his humiliation, he died. Death entered the world through the fall. Christ became human and fulfilled that duty as a man up to and including a penal substitution of dying. However, it stops there. He does not continue then to be judged on our behalf because in our experience, if we were to be judged without Christ after death, then the things are waiting, final judgment. And so... What I want to remove from your mind is that once Christ died on the cross, that in that span of the descent, which is what we've been focusing on this whole time, that there was any additional suffering that took place on our behalf. He did not suffer. And here's another quote. Um, actually, this is from the Crux book. Quote, Jesus did not descend to suffer, but to subdue. Close quote. So uh, another really good quote. The analogy that I thought of was um, if you think of a runner that is uh, running a distance race and he's going, at what point is the runner probably at his greatest level of discomfort? Near the end, right? And yet, the runner, as he nears the end, pushes even harder to get to the finish line. So, in this analogy here, you have the runner running and enduring pain and suffering and yet pushing even harder as he nears the finish line. And then once he crosses the finish line, he gets through the tape and he knows that he won the race. The runner continues to take a lap around the track, a victory lap, but yet, he is not recognized at that moment, even though it's done, right? He's won the race. He's passed the finish line first. He takes his victory lap for everyone to see, and then it's after that that he'll stand on the podium and receive the crown and everything like that, where there is a formal acknowledgement, even though everybody already knows that it's done. And so that span in there uh, fits well with this, and so I would say then that at the cross, when he says it is finished, 
this is all the suffering and all the humiliation is finished. The work is absolutely done. Then when you get into the descent, so in 1 Peter 3.19 when it says Jesus went and proclaimed that victory to the spirits in prison, so using that analogy, he, the victory has been secured. He's crossed the finish line. It is finished. The deed is done. He has yet to be recognized formally, and yet he takes his victory lap, and they all get to know what it is that he has done in claiming this victory. And then a, a couple verses later there, in the ascension in 1 Peter 3.22, it says, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so now we have that formal recognition of Christ seated at the right hand of God, and he's reigning over the church, and the victory has been secured. So that those order, that order of events has taken place. Hopefully my other two readers have their verses down, because I'm flipping the board. This is a, well, my a couple very small modifications of a diagram that came out of the Emerson book, the Matthew Emerson um, book, He Descended to the Dead, and I thought it was very helpful. So again, just like um, this order of events that I'm referring to, so what you have is essentially what Jane read in Philippians um, about Jesus taking on the, uh, form, the likeness of a man, a human form in his incarnation. That is part of the humiliation. That's the first step. And then he lives his life, and it gets to the point of crucifixion, at which time, at which time you have the climax of humiliation for Christ. And then he descends to the dead, and that is the end of his humiliation. He is in the place of the dead. He is in Hades. He is in Sheol. He is going through all parts of Sheol, upper, lower, lowest. But he is not doing that from a position of suffering or humiliation. And also, we see that is what is simultaneously happening in the descent is this is actually the beginning of his exaltation because the race has been won. He's crossed the line. Victory has been achieved. And then at his resurrection, we have the climax of his exaltation. And then he proceeds to um, the ascension and remains in that state until he returns again. So these are all the things that are taking place in that uh, descent with the realm of the dead. So, as I said, I suggest that at the time of uh, Jesus saying, it is finished, that the deed and the victory has been won. So what I want to do is focus a little bit more on what it is that was accomplished so that we can take all of this knowledge that we've gained over the last several weeks of looking at this and have even fuller hearts over the, uh, have a better sense of of the victory that Christ secured. So, uh, I would suggest that this is connected to the account. When I say this, um, I'm talking about the, uh, the it is finished part, that this is connected to the binding of the strong man. So, when Jesus 
says that, and he says, hey, if you're going to bind this, or if you're going to plunder the strong man's house, first there must be a binding of the strong man. And so I'm suggesting that at the time that Christ is crucified, and essentially at the moment that he says it is finished, we have the, the strong man being bound. Click. Lock in that. Okay? Yes. Yes, good point. So the question was, was, what was the strong man thinking at the time of the crucifixion? He would have been thinking victory himself. He would have, uh, because he, you know, he put everything into, and actually we're going to look at it here in a second. He put everything into winning this battle that came to this, uh, to this head at the point that he believes, at this, basically the same point that he believes he is victorious it is discovered that he is ultimately, you know, defeated. He's been conquered, and he has actually been bound. So, um, my Matthew twelve twenty six to twenty nine is that you, Brandon? Hopefully, you'll recall uh, the uh, you know our lowest Sheol part, the uh, the abyss talk, the place that the Satan and the demons ended up. Go ahead and read your verses. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house." All right, so Jesus here, you know, let's think through the, the kind of the tenses in a way. I don't, maybe that's not the best way to put it, but he's talking about a coming kingdom. And his connection to the coming kingdom is that if you're going to plunder that strong man's house, then you have to bind the strong man for that future, for that coming kingdom. And so I would say that it's, a, it's during this time that that binding process has actually been initiated and that, they, that Christ is working towards the goal of ultimately plundering his house. And we see that in the, uh, the, the many accounts of Jesus casting out demons. All right, and then um, Isaiah 24, 21 to 23. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be, the, will be before his elders." Okay, so there is some really important stuff right in there in that Isaiah passage. This is Isaiah, the prophet, you know, prophesying about the future at a time that these kings, so that's an earthly reference, and these um, uh, evil angels, fallen angels, that will also be cast into a pit, and that the Lord, along with these elders, will be ruling. And so I would suggest that the that day, 
quote unquote, that is being referred to in Isaiah 24 there in those verses is this day. That is the day in which Jesus says it is finished and those things have taken place. And all of that is even temporary because as Gerald read there at the very end, there's going to be a final day where they're released and then short time after that, a final judgment is going to take place. But you can start to see now with this background of this Hades and Sheol and the realm of the dead and what Christ is doing in his descent, that there is this uh, war that is taking place that culminates and finishes on that day, which is the day that Christ says it is finished. Okay, so if we look at it and we go, okay, this is when it finished and when that deed was done, a good question then is, well, when did it start? And I don't, I can't put, I can't give you an exact, but I do want to point something out out of Revelation chapter 12, and this is some fascinating stuff. So if you would, I'm going to read this. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 12, and I want to point out what I believe is being uh, discussed here. So let me just put up front so that you can get the visual. I contend that at a minimum, an official war started at the conception of Christ in, in his humiliation. Now, whether or not the war in some way started a little bit before that or, or something, you know, the Second Temple era or something like that. It's possible. Uh, it's clean for me, and it makes sense to me that at Christ's choice to, to take on that human form, the Philippians 5 that, um, that Jane read, that at that moment, war was on. The race, to use my previous analogy, the race had started. Gunshot, pa, and they're out of the blocks, okay? And so what we have here in Romans chapter 12 is, is a... Uh, sorry, Romans. Rev, thank you. Revelation chapter 12 is we have symbolic language talking about this war beginning. So Revelation 12 in the first six verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, so the woman being the church, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So this is referring to the birth of Christ. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And so this is a description of Satan in, uh, as a counterfeit god. So he's, he's trying to, to take on a crown. And uh, he's got seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That is not heavenly beings. That would be a reference to, um, um, to a, a destruction of or... Um, to actually a portion of the church or of God's people. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So as we're continuing this, uh, this symbolism, we're looking at it and we go, okay, Satan right now is sitting there trying to stop the race from happening. He's, he's, he is trying to devour the child. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in that just right there in that verse 5, we have the entirety of Christ's life and his victory on the cross. 
And then it goes on in verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, so that would be the church, so this is post-Christ, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the church continues in the inaugurated kingdom until Christ returns. Now, this is, uh, hopefully you um, are used to hearing this, particularly from Pastor Nick, going through Genesis and, and Exodus, you know, in these Um, Old Testament passages, but what happens then starting in verse 7 of chapter 12 is, do you remember what the Hebrews tend to do in their writing? They repeat, but then they add something. So this is what goes on. So we're repeating the same war, okay, in verse 7, except for whereas what was described in verses 1 through 6 are talking about the evil one's attempt to thwart Christ's incarnation on earth, what you have in starting in verse 7 is the same war taking place in heaven. Earth, heaven. Now, now watch this, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now keep, hopefully, this, this, these pictures that you've built from us looking at the realm of the dead over the, the, the past weeks, and then in particular what uh, Gerald just read out of Isaiah 24 and the future that's going to take place, we see the blood of the lamb is what then takes away the access of Satan and the other evil fallen angels, the access that they had to God, or to use the, the imagery that PJ has been preaching in Daniel, that heavenly courtroom, they're removed from access. They don't get that access any longer. Um, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that's the church now in the inaugurated age, post-Christ and everything he accomplished, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep, away her, sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. So what we have here in the second half is a recap of what took in the, uh, starting at verse 7, what happened in verses 1 through 6, but from a heavenly perspective. And then in verse 17, it's a recap of the whole thing again. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. 
So what we're seeing here is, and um, there are other portions of Revelation that refer to Satan as basically being a sea monster. And of course, um, we've heard reference before about the sea being chaotic and everything like that. Now, I know I read a lot. I know there's a lot of symbolism in there. There's probably a million questions that popped up in your head. But the connection I'm trying to make to this is I'm trying to, you know, put some meat on the bones of this study that helps you think through what it was that was accomplished when Jesus said it is finished. It certainly was much more than the pain and, and, and the humiliation that took place. Um, this is an all-out war that had been going on the entire time. Satan throws everything he has at it, thinking he is victorious because he finally got to the point in the war where he has killed the son, only to find out that at that same moment right here, it isn't the climax of his humiliation. That was up here at it is finished. It is the end of his humiliation, and it's the beginning of his exaltation. And you have the fact that now he goes and proclaims this victory to the spirits in prison. I mean, that is just a lot of stuff. Um, let's see where I want to. So let me pause there. And we've got one more thing that we need to definitely address before we finish the class, which is we've got to discuss the Apostles' Creed. Um, and what we're going to do with it. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll pause there because I know I just kind of dumped a, a lot on everybody with that, and I will open it up for, for questions or, or comments, if you have additional comments as well, over any part of the, any part of the study. No, you're getting passed over, Jerry. Um, I was confused when you were just now talking about the um, that passage in Revelation 12 where it says where, and about the woman and the child. And you said the woman is the church. Correct. But she gives birth to the child, which is Christ. Yeah. She, so, she's a product. Um, I mean, the child is a product. He is becoming incarnate as one of God's, I mean, I, mean, I don't know if putting it that way is the right way, but one of God's people. I mean... If I think of the churches as Israel, God's chosen people that gives birth to Christ, yeah, he's that a descendant. Right, he's a descendant, you know, of David and of of God's people. Okay. So he comes forth, and so you can go right back to you know, well, then how does you know? Right now, you're probably in that same spot that uh, people were when Jesus says, "Well, then, what does it mean when David said, I said to my Lord, how does it go? My Lord said to.'" <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there was, there was a, you know, the gears kind of start to get hot because you're like, well, wait, how does that work? And so I think in the same way we're seeing, well, he, was, he humbled himself to take on a human form to become a product, mm -hmm. to be a member of God's people as a descendant of David, but obviously he was a greater. And the church, uh, I mean, Israel, the church is the true Israel. So Correct, yes. So, so you could think of it as the church prior to Christ being Israel. Yes. But it's all the same. You know, yes, God's and in fact, people. in the sermon today, too, um, it works out that the, the part where we are in Acts is going to address that, too. But mm -hmm. correct. Yes.
Hello? Hello? So uh, you're saying, well, you're saying, Revelation is saying that the battle actually begins at the birth of Christ. I would, war. I would say at the, at the conception of Christ. Okay. Because Satan is already ready when, it, when he's going to be born to try to devour him. And, and there's probably a connection there as well and then to Herod killing the babies. And I mean. And what is the battle over? Well, the battle is over, obviously, control because Satan is a, from the very beginning, he is, he is trying to usurp And who's, who's controlling the keys of the keys? Oh, I'm right glad now. you brought that up. I've, I forgot to even mention the keys. So that's part. Uh, so <coughs> at this point, um, a couple of things I think we can say with um, confidence is that, first of all, uh, to, to continue to borrow from PJ's um, a verbiage from his preaching is that Satan himself and perhaps even other uh, fallen angels have some kind of access to God. They're in the heavenly right. court. They right. are accusing. They're accusers. Satan is the accuser. Right. And right. he is doing his job of accusing the saints and has access to God to do the accusing. And the other thing that he has is he has the keys to death and Hades at that time. So that's why we have all of these verses in the Old Testament that say okay. that it's a prison and they're going down into the prison. And now you connect all of that and you go, well, Satan's not letting go of anyone. Right. Even if they're in paradise, they're not going anywhere. Okay. Yeah. But now you have Jesus in a short amount of time prior to going to the climax of his humiliation of the cross saying, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the uh, gates of Hades, see, I'm still, the gates of Hades will not stand. So he is going to go take the keys from the accuser. And he goes, he goes down to all, all the depths, right? Even to the, the yeah. Yes. And Pastor uh, 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 Nick had a great line, that that's a victory lap. Yes. He, he now yes. owns the keys. Yeah. <laughs> By the time he says it is finished, he's holding, he's holding, he's the, holding keys. the keys. Yeah. So Satan, to, to, to Pastor Nick's point earlier, he's like, well, what did Satan think? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's standing there thinking he's victorious, only to look down at his hand and realize he's yeah. missing something. It, the keys to death in Hades. And I like what you did earlier in the year with, with your uh, uh, a series on Mark, where Jesus starts that. Okay. Yeah. That whole come and get me. Right. right. And the whole descent from right. the, 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 the Gentile laying down to Jerusalem all down was all Jerusalem. about getting it ready. And then it all, and then you get all of these ties. What you regularly see, and I think Pastor Nick has just hit it over and over again, is you see the evil powers that are behind rulers, that are behind kings, that are behind people that are in positions of power. And then you think through then, okay, now, now um, um, Jesus is descending to where all of these rulers are and these Pharisees and that are liars and that are the, the children of their father, the father of lies, and they execute the very thing. And, and of course, it all culminates in this victory and Jesus taking the keys. I mean, the whole thing, which all still ties to what Gerald read in Isaiah that was prophesied, like the whole thing. PJ. Yeah, so... <clears throat> You're, none of our minds, especially if you're, it's unfair. He, he and I, all of us have been reading on this stuff, discussing it over and over for months. 
and so it starts to sink in, you understand it better, you realize the connections to what all of us are teaching and what's going on. So I would say, don't feel the pressure now to come away with the perfect picture, but instead, this is development in our understanding and learning. But I think we've been being prepared for this, uh, this approach. So for example, even in Daniel 7, we covered the first half, but in the second half, it says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom, it shall devour the whole earth, as for ten horns, out of this kingdom, another king will, will arise, and he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. You have this exact description of Revelation 12. And they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. And then the court sits in judgment, to st and his dominion will be taken away. He'll be destroyed. And so you, you have this language. You're like, oh, okay, wait. Some of this mysterious Daniel stuff makes sense. But then back it up even further to the Exodus, you have the victory, you have the victory over Pharaoh, you have victory over his, over his people, and you have a lot of swallowing up language and things there. And then what do, we, what do you have after like the, the victory over Pharaoh? You have the plundering of Pharaoh, you have all the gold and riches, mm -hmm. all of that, and awaiting, and the time, there's a time in between, and awaiting to get to a promised land, right? So there's this intermediate time. I would even time. add between in that time waiting for the promised land is being in the wilderness. Exactly. Which, which is exactly which is what Revelation with worship. 12 says. So, yes. so you go like, wait a minute. This has happened before. This is why the Exodus keeps getting referenced. This is why the God who brought us out of Egypt. And you start to see these things are happening over and over. And so my hope would be out of this series, as it's been for me over time and will continue to be, is that as things get preached and taught, it's that all these different connectors, just all the more you realize this piece fits in, in the perfect pattern of everything else that God is laying out in scripture. It's not an addition. It shouldn't be a whole change right. to, to right. a lot of stuff. Instead, it just, it connects in that piece. Um, it, it all happens again, but with greater detail and but fulfillment. I, I do want to try to absolve people of the pressure <laughs> as much as possible to feel like I don't understand this fully why don't I understand it? Um, I'd encourage you to, you know, talk more because uh, um, that's what we've been. We have time for another, uh, Pastor Nick. Yeah, and then I'll then I'll hit Apostles' Creed. Yes. Pete, can you speak to you've you've got him holding the keys all the way in the bottom. Speak to the freeing of the of the captives um, as he goes up. Oh, yes, yes, thank you. Um, so we have at the it is finished, Jesus taking the keys. And so now all of these places or many of the places where you see the verbiage about setting the captives free, what you have then is in the resurrection of Christ. He is taking the captives with him, this group right here, Upper Sheol. They are going with him and are in his presence as he rules from up there, albeit in a disembodied state. So they still have yet to have their glorified body. Jesus is ahead of the game, of course, because he is the firstborn among creation. He already has his glorified body, as is testified in Scripture and the, the, what the people see in, in, that, those, in that time that Christ is actually there. But he has his body, so... The upper Sheol is a non-factor post-Christ. So our destination. Our destina we don't pass go. Go being 
Upper Sheol. We don't collect $200. We, we go straight to the presence of God because we're just the beneficiaries of the time that God has placed us, which is post Christ's work, post it is finished, post taking the keys, post the climax of his humiliation and the descent. And so what happens now is you have the unrighteous that just continue to wait from a place of anguish and torment to out of the frying pan into the fire of uh, final judgment. And we have a fallen angel and Satan that is bound, but is not without any power or influence whatsoever. And in fact, or to use the language of Revelation chapter 12, um, and he went off to make war on the rest of the offspring on those who keep the commandments of God. So this is you and me and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So we still have Satan, the red dragon, the evil one, the accuser that's been bound, but he's on the sand of the sea and he's still trying to wage war. Why? Because he knows his time is short. This is coming. Good question. Thank you. All right. So in the last uh, four minutes that we have, I just wanted to address um, uh, in, that in, in that very first class, I mentioned that one of the reasons that we wanted to e- even go uh, engage in this study was because, you know, we make a habit of reciting the Apostles' Creed. And in fact, if you take your blue hymnal that you've got there, it's on, uh, thank you, Roman numeral 12, right in the very beginning. And so I'm not going to... I'm not going to throw any shade. I'm not going to criticize the um, creators of the Apostles' Creed, and I'll tell you why. Um, so right, what we're looking at then is, is that suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. See how it's all separated out. And they put, or in, I, should, I shouldn't say they, the, the English translators ha- chose he descended into hell. And so what we, uh, the elders, have decided, because the options that we have, and hopefully this will be clear to you now, the options that we have available to us, if we're going to change this to be more precise, is to say, we could say the dead, to the place of the dead. Um, I know in stuff that I read, it, it also said to the, um, uh, yeah, to, to the underworld, um, to the lower regions, to, I thought I had it more of them written down here. Uh, yeah, Sheol. Um, this is bothering me. I can't find it in my notes. In, in any case, um, the, all those options are out there and would be more, would just be a better choice than hell. And the one we're going with is Hades. And the reason that we're doing that is uh, Sheol would, would be a, a, a good choice. Maybe one reason is that all of this took place after, in the New Testament era, you know, the Old Testament, that's Hebrew, that's Sheol, the New Testament, uh, Hades. Uh, Here's another, and I think probably one of the strongest arguments for choosing to use Hades is that um, it has some historical basis. The, uh, The Apostles' Creed came out. I don't know which came first, if it was Latin or if it was Greek, but, um, in Greek, the Greek version from the outset said Hades. And so when it was translated into English, they just, they, they changed it to hell. So that's why I'm saying I'm not criticizing. We're not changing. I don't want anybody to think 
that we, you know, Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church and the pastors and the elders know better than the creators of the Apostles' Creed. Like, I'm not making that claim in any way. What I'm saying is that <clears throat> we're being a little more precise to what I think they were saying from the very beginning. Um, or, so, anyway, what we'll probably end up doing is instead of reading them out of the, the hymnals, we'll end up having a, a handout, just like we do with the Lord's Prayer and, and trying to be a little more precise with that. So... Uh, and the other thing, uh, one, one of the elders brought up that's really good, too, about not doing, like, the place of the dead, is even in a today's culture and Hollywood and TV, even saying the dead already conjures up TV shows and movies that are current, that are, like, you know, zombie-type, you know, it's like, okay. Um, I think it simplifies, and within our church, it's kind of, if you know, you know, and as opposed to saying the underworld, that almost begs for every time we say it, people coming up and going, okay, hold on a second. What are we doing here? So we don't, want, we don't need to be obnoxious about it, but we can still know what we're all doing and what we're all saying and prepared to give an answer. So that's kind of where we landed on that. Boom, 945. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Oh, boy, what a, what a ride this, uh, these, these seven classes have been on all of this. Help us to search the scriptures and to confirm what is true, Lord, because it isn't what I say is true because I am the one up front and I'm holding the microphone or wearing a tie. It's uh, what is true is what you have said is true from your word. So uh, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and that that wisdom and understanding and knowledge and insight into your holy word would uh, produce godly fruit. Bless the service that is to follow in the preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen.